receipts. Receipts tell us how much, where, and when a purchase was made oftentimes. I have one here from the taco shop. It tells you how sophisticated my diet is. The taco shop, uh, January 10th, 2024. Actually 11.35 a.m. Tells me what we ordered, my total, and um, it's a very interesting way to know where that money was spent and what was purchased. So receipts, you probably have a few in your own pocket now. Other purchases, they're etched into our memories because of how expensive or timely or how they changed our life. In January of 1980, my father and I drove into a car dealer lot in Paola, Kansas, a small Kansas town. Through the last few summers on a bridge construction crew, I had been able to set aside to save up enough money to where I could try to buy my first car. It's a Datsun 310GX. Front wheel drive, five speed manual transmission. Maroon body, black trim. It was a beauty and it was a lot of fun to drive. But perhaps my best purchase was at the Ardans Discount Department Store on West 21st Street near Amadon. Does anybody even remember that store? Okay, a few people do. That is where one October day in 1981, I, the big spender, bought the wedding ring I would give Sherry, hoping she would say yes to my proposal and wear it the rest of her life. And I praise God and thank Him that she has done that. But on a greater life-changing level, listen to this account from the late 1700s. From the late 1700s here in the United States. There were also groups like the Pennsylvania Abolition Society that freed slaves after purchase. One example of this involves Dinah Neville of mixed African and Native American descent and her children. Neville and her three children had been sold to a Virginia master. The woman fought for her freedom in the courts but failed in her attempt. In one of the PAS's earliest actions, they were able to purchase Neville and two of her children and set them free in 1779. I'm sure Miss Neville remembered the day of that purchase as long as she lived. But while it may seem impossible to imagine, here I will read to you an even greater and the only purchase that can be recalled and reveled in long after death. Knowing that you were not redeemed, and that word means to be purchased out of slavery, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In Exodus chapter 13, God calls on his people to remember their purchase. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book that you have given to us, that through holy men of God that were moved by your Holy Spirit, they wrote to us. You wrote to us. And we thank you, Father, and I pray that you would give us understanding this morning. 
Father, please overcome my inadequacies, my weaknesses. Your, your word has no weakness and no inadequacy. And I pray that you will speak to each of us about who you are through these passages. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for the song that was sang just earlier that the Lord God would take the place among men, not as a king, as a ruler, but as a slave, as a servant. And that you would dwell among us and bring life to us through your death. And through your resurrection, we praise you and ask you to lead us. Amen. Verse 1 in chapter 13 reads, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate me to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast. It is mine. Remember who purchased you. In other words, recognize the sovereign ownership of Yahweh. See, Israel was commanded to sanctify. And, and here I'm going to include verses 11 through 16 with verse 1 and 2. Verse 11 goes on to say, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. The word consecrate or to sanctify. The two words used in verse 2, one is kadash, and in verse 12, abar, have similar, similar uses in these verses. They mean to set apart or give completely, to give holy to God. In other words, personal possession is gone. And Yahweh is the sole owner. In fact, verse 2 quotes Yahweh saying, It is mine. It belongs to me. What is the it? The it here is the firstborn. The firstborn of man and beast. The firstborn was obviously the first in time. But if you think about it, it is not only the first, but it is the only at that point. In scripture, the firstborn son received special consideration as well as added responsibility. He was an heir and he was a leader of the family. He would receive a double inheritance portion but he would also be expected to someday shoulder the load as leader of the family. Now this sanctifying of the firstborn was also seen as a way of stating that not simply that one, but all of the children of this family belong to God. The sanctification of the firstborn would be like a representative head of the rest of the siblings to be born. And we see something like that in, in Romans chapter 5. This idea of federal headship or representative headship. Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam was firstborn of all mankind. And therefore, as our federal head, his sin became our sin. Now, sometimes men reject that biblical truth. It seems and sometimes to be unfair. Adam did that. I didn't. But, but the scriptures tell us that in Adam, all have sinned. But there is a very, very, very wonderful flip side to this idea of federal headship. 
Reading further in Romans 5, we read, For if by the one man Adam's offense death reigned through that one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ has become our federal head. And because of that, we are granted abundance of grace, the gift of righteousness, and a royal reign with our Heavenly Father. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. Men seem to like that part of federal headship. And we praise God for that. But that is somewhat of that standing of the firstborn. What that represented to the people. Moses goes on to write how that sanctification was to be done. In verse 12 he goes on to say that is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have. The males shall be the Lord's. So how was this means of sanctification? Well first of all he speaks of the sacrifice of the clean. The animals or the beasts that Moses first specifies are those that are ceremonially, un ceremonially clean. It would be the lambs, the goats, the cattle. <coughs> these were acceptable sacrifices to Yahweh. Fully devoting these animals to Yahweh meant that they were to be ceremonially sacrificed. But some domestic animals were considered unclean. Such as donkeys. They were not acceptable to sacrifice. Yet it was still required that they be set apart. The redemption of the unclean. Verse 13. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. And if you will not redeem it then you shall break its neck. You see rather than offer an unclean animal to sacrifice. The Lord allowed his people two options. Either sacrifice a lamb in its place or break the unclean animal's neck. In other words, the clean lamb would be offered to preserve the life of the unclean donkey. If a redeeming lamb was not offered, the donkey must die. Well, why did God create this sanctification requirement for Israel? Why is there coming out? Does then he put this on their shoulders? Well, first of all, it's because it contained an important story. Verse 14 says, So it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. And we've gone over for the last several weeks the, the searing tragedy that must have been felt throughout that nation at that time. It said not a house was without death. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. You see it was imperative that Israel tell and teach their children what Yahweh had done. It was not to be forgotten. Nor to be taken lightly. Revisionist history. Must not diminish the greatest acts of God in the Old Testament. It was Yahweh's strong mighty hand. That first of all defeated Pharaoh. 
Secondly, it set Israel free from slavery. And thirdly, it moved the people of God to serve and worship Yahweh. You see, sanctification would also be a constant memorial. Verse 16 says, It shall be as a sign on your hand, that is frontlets between your eyes. For by strength of hand the Lord, shall, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And can you imagine that growing up in this context and in these places there in Israel? The regular sacrifice of every one of the firstborn farm animals. The redemption of firstborn donkeys with a lamb, slaughtered lamb. And every family's firstborn son serving Yahweh in the sanctuary of God. That would be a vivid and continual reminder of the night that the Lord spared his children of Israel from Passover death. I just mentioned firstborn sons. Well, you see, donkeys are not the only unclean thing mentioned here. Verse 13 second part of it says, And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. You see, the Lord would not require the slaughter of children. But neither is man considered clean before God. He is unclean because of sin. Without redemption, the firstborn son would have the same fate as the unclean, unredeemed donkey. It would be death. Now this redemption of sons originally required the firstborn son of every family to serve in the sanctuary of Yahweh. That's how they were set apart. But, as we will find as we move into Exodus further, there is this tragic golden calf idolatry that happens to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. At that point, the Lord spoke to Moses, and it's recorded in Numbers 3, verse 11. He said, now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel. Instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine. Because all the firstborn are mine. Get the representative part of that. The Levites are, but he's still saying, but all the firstborn are mine. And on the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am Yahweh. The Levites were appointed by God as substitutes for the firstborn sons of all Israel. Now Numbers 18 tells us a little bit more about this, uh, this redemption cost. Here it states the amount that the Levites then were to collect for every firstborn of Israel. In Numbers chapter 18, Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem when one month old, according to your valuation, for five shekels of silver. So there was a price placed on this redemption. But there is a far greater reason than simply to be a, a memorial. You see, these laws of substitution and redemption of the firstborn, they are what we often call representative types. They are a shadow of something far superior. A far superior substitution and redemption. You see, many centuries later, it was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what this stood for. 
Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy back those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That beautiful song that they sang just a few minutes ago was about this in the fullness of time. That's what God did. His own son came in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 through 20. You are not your own. The last part of verse 19. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Galatians 3, 13. Christ has redeemed us. And look at the price. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What a costly redemption. Titus 2, verses 13 and 14. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Hebrews 9, 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We are bought eternally by the blood of Christ. And then finally, Revelation 5, verse 9. And this will be beautiful to hear. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We heard of Ethiopia this morning. And well, we heard of our brothers and sisters in Lebanon. We've prayed for those in Kiev, in Haiti, as Princess shared. Every tribe, tongue, people, nation. The redemption has gone out for us. And then we'll go back to verse 3 because there it speaks about a bit different look on this. It says, and I, I put under here the, the topic, remember when you were purchased. Remember when you were purchased. In other words, recognize the magnitude and cost Yahweh paid to redeem you. They again are commanded to remember. And Moses said to the people, remember. What do we remember? 3B. This day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. And how are we supposed to remember this? Well, this is odd to us. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Unleavened bread. It's bread which was prepared without rising agents such as yeast or leaven. It seems that things like pita or matzah or naan bread, they all fit this kind of a description. Now some people, some Bible references are quick to say that throughout the Old and New Testament, leaven is representative of sin. But after looking at the 20 plus uses of leaven and leavened in the Old Testament, I didn't find that to necessarily be true. In fact, there was no direct metaphor for leaven as sin in the Old Testament. 
Now it is true that in the Old Testament, leaven was not to be in any grain offerings, nor was it to be burned on the altar as, any, as a sacrifice. But we are not told specifically why. And in fact, in Leviticus 7.13, leavened bread was offered as a sacrifice of thanksgiving in the peace offering. Now in the New Testament, Paul certainly uses leaven as an analogy to sin. No doubt about it. 1 Corinthians 5. Hypocrisy and false teaching are two things Jesus compares to leaven. But in one case, Jesus actually uses leaven as a symbol of the kingdom of God. So be careful and look at the context. And I, I want us to be wise in that way as we look at the scriptures. Look at the context. Don't assume that leaven equates to sin. But it appears at this time of the Exodus, what do we read? That the main emphasis of leaven is to show that the Israelites needed to get out of Goshen fast. They did not have time to wait for the bread to rise. Exodus 12 verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. I think much of the emphasis may include the idea of, being, of having leaven eradicated as we want to have sin eradicated. But the emphasis from chapter 12 verse 39 is that we had to get out of there fast. We were moving. We were going. And then when do we remember it? Well verse 4 says on the day you are going out. It's the month of Abib. Now Abib is the name of the month of the new Jewish calendar. The first month of that calendar. Yahweh created that back in Exodus chapter 12. And Phil taught, taught us on that a few weeks back. There it reads this month shall be your beginnings of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now when Israel returned out of exile from Babylon about a thousand years later this month became known as the month of Nisan but they are actually the same when you see Abib or Nisan it is the first month of the Jewish calendar in verse 5 they're commanded again to remember verse 5 and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey this time Yahweh reminds his people specifically of where they are bound. Now not so much where they came from, but this time where are they going? He increases their anticipation by telling them it is a land rich and prosperous. You see, it is managed, cultivated, and currently inhabited by at least five other nations. It is there that they will celebrate this unleavened bread as well. And verse 5 says that you shall keep this service in this month, Abib. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Verse 7 gives some description. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. And then look how tight this gets in verse 7. And no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And there are stories about how they would take candles and go into the nooks and crannies of the home and sweep them out and to make sure there was absolutely no leaven during this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then again, Israel is to promulgate this. That means to promote or to make it widely known 
to their sons. Verse 8, And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. The feast is to preserve the memory. This shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. As in verse 16, this is to be a metaphor. It is to be a word picture. But as one which the Jews later established as what we call the phylacteries, the religious phylacteries. They would write a few verses from Exodus 13 and from Deuteronomy 6 and 11 on scraps of paper and they would place them in these small leather boxes with straps. Then they would tie these boxes to their forehead and on their left forearm to literally show out this verse. Jesus says they missed the point. The leather phylacteries became a religious exhibition. Actually, uh, several years ago in a flight from, uh, I think it was Atlantic City, maybe it's from Atlanta, to Tel Aviv. I'd never seen this before. It was a, we were on a plane, uh, I think David was with me there and Peter, and we were heading to Tel Aviv and in the middle of the night, uh, much of the, pa the passenger group there were Orthodox Jews. And uh, several of them got up and went to different places on the airplane. It was a very large plane. And they pulled out of their patches these phylacteries. And they took that box and tied it around their forehead and tied one on their forearm and began to sway and pray in their particular spot on the airplane. And that's what this was about. That's where this came from. And it still goes on today. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the border of their garments. It would have become a show. And as odd as it may seem, this regulation of unleavened bread must have been very significant. For it is not only repeated in chapter 13, but it was also previously commanded back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. Verse 14 says, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whatever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now finally, finally Israel was commanded to remember the presence of your proprietor. The proprietor is one who has legal right or exclusive title to something. Remember the presence of your proprietor. Recognize God's ongoing presence throughout your life. <clears throat> we begin in verse 17 and here the Lord has a very securitous route. Webster says 
Securitas means going round in a circuit, not direct. The Oxford languages reads longer than the most direct way. Let's read verse 17. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. This was certainly not the most direct way. A northern path straight to Canaan would have gotten them there in much less than two weeks. But Yahweh strategically took them on a very different route. First of all, God says that he didn't take him that way in order to avoid the Philistine region and the threat of war. Perhaps they would turn tail and run back to Egypt at that time. Besides potential Philistine clashes, there are also many Egyptian fortresses along the border there for border control. It would have made it very difficult for them to go through without some serious military clashes. For his own all-wise reason, the Lord did not desire, in this case, to provide a miraculous victory as he had just done over Egypt, or as he would certainly do in the future to capture the promised land. I don't really know why. But he didn't do so. Scripture gives us two additional reasons, though, why he did not go take them through the Philistine. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So not only to avoid the Philistines, but so that they would be tested, that they would go through trials, so that they would see their hearts. So I think that they would see their absolute desperate need for God and their absolute desperate, desperate sin. Another one. You see, it was prophetically scheduled by Yahweh when he met Moses while Moses was still herding sheep in Exodus chapter 3. At that time, God promised Moses the defeated, hired sheep herder for his father-in-law. He met with him there on the backside of the mountain and he told him, So I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That was Mount Horeb, or also known as Mount Sinai. And that happened to be far to the south and east of the direct northern route that would have taken them directly to Canaan. Another thing happens on this journey. Verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Now, if you take a little bit of time and meditate on what that's talking about there, it's very, very interesting. We can't even find graves of people a few hundred years old, oftentimes. But man, they had these bones ready to go. They knew the promise that God had made to Joseph. <coughs> In Exodus, or excuse me, in Genesis chapter 50, we see where this comes from. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, 
But God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In the Exodus, this long-awaited promise comes true. And then we go to the New Testament into what we call the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Here the writer of Hebrews hails us an example of Old Testament faith. Verse 22, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. He was absolutely confident that God would fulfill his promise to him. And then we come to the last three verses here. And it speaks of the Lord's continual presence. So they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. We've seen renditions of this, what that must have looked like. It's hard to imagine uh, this visible pillar of fire and cloud, however, began leading Israel as they departed from Sukkoth and headed toward Etham. Eventually, it would lead them on to Mount Sinai, and then it would continue for the next 40 years, giving them direction. I want to give you three pillar purposes here. First of all, the obvious one, direction. Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way. Then by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. Second one, protection. Exodus 14, verse 19. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one and it gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. And thirdly, presence. The presence. Number 14, 14. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, you, Yahweh, are among these people that you, Yahweh, are seen face to face and your cloud stands above them and you will go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. The presence of God was with them. The pillar was just as much to show Yahweh's never departing presence as it was to guide them where they were going or to protect them from any harm. It was to remind them who was with them as well as where he was leading them. The prophet Joshua wrote, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, God has provided a pillar of fire and cloud for our age. First, we have God's word. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. 
And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Psalm 18, 28. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Job 29, 3. When his lamp shone upon my head. And when by his light I walked through darkness. And we have the Spirit of God as a second pillar. Acts 5.32 And we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Acts 1.8 But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts 15.8 So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. John 14, 16. And I will pray the Father and He will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him but you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. And finally John 16, verse 13 and 14. However, when He, the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he speaks, for whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. And he will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The conclusion that I'd like to share from this chapter. With all the things we've looked at, there is a strong emphasis here. As we look through this, the parents of the Exodus were to look for opportunity to testify what God has done for them. They were to bear witness to their sons. And that would also include all of the children. This is God's strong example and exhortation for us to carry out as well. Are you looking for opportunity? Are you looking for opportunity to explain and answer questions about what Christ has done in your life personally? To your children, to your spouse, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, extended family, teammates. Will you tell them about the pillar of the Holy Spirit and God's word that leads you? Will you explain how Christ Jesus was sacrificed by God the Father in your place on the cross to redeem you out of the bondage of sin and death? And not only that, he made you his son. Can you explain to them the reality behind why on the first Sunday of the month we take a small piece of bread and a cup of juice and talk about Jesus' body and his blood? Can you explain that? Will you explain it? Can you explain why we are commanded to repent, believe, and be baptized? I encourage you, parents, be ready. Be looking for those opportunities. Create those opportunities. And I encourage you, young people, your sons, your daughters, ask these questions. Don't sit there and go through these first 18 years of your life and just let it roll off the top of your head. This is life-changing. And if you don't understand it and know it, you will spend an eternity in hell. But you are offered life-changing gospel through the Word of God. Now some of you are single and you don't have sons to preach to, to speak to, to listen to and ask questions with. But you have many opportunities, I know. 
I've talked to enough Walmart people and YMCA guys and people in the park and downtown. Look for those opportunities. Look for the opportunities. You only have one life to live. And it'll be over like this. And when it's done, did you spend it for the one who owns you? The one who says you are mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, where I've wandered off or gone astray, forgive me, but keep our people's hearts toward you. Lord, give them a strong desire to understand you and know you and equip them, equip me, equip us, Lord, to, to be ready to declare this lost world, to this broken world, even to, to saints that are struggling, the truth and the glories and the joys of Christ. Lord, equip us and use us. May we never forget when you say you are mine. What a great privilege that is. In your name, amen.